we also had a wartime cover, which included identifications, uh, IDs, and a cover story that would explain why we were in Berlin. So it was like living two personalities at once. Welcome back to the live drop. My guest is James Stakel. He's the author of Special Forces Berlin, the Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army's Elite from 1956 to 1990. James talks about a secret stay-behind unit that he was a member of. Um, they were trained in spycraft, specialized in unconventional warfare, sabotage, intelligence collection. Detachment A, or PSSC soldiers as they were called, also had alternate identities. They wore civilian clothes, spoke fluent German, and mixed in the city in the event of a Soviet or East German attack when they would wreak havoc behind enemy lines. Begin transmission now. You're the author of the, of the book Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations of the U.S. Army's Elite, 1956 to 1990. Um, you did go special forces. You said you spent some time at Fort Devon, and um, then you ended up at Berlin in Detachment A, which was Special Forces Berlin. Could you just give me like a, a little brief background on this on this unit? Detachment A was set up in 1956. It was a company-sized unit that was separated off of uh, the 10th Special Forces, which was located at Bad Tolz in southern Germany. They were sent to Berlin as a clandestine unit. Um, they went to Berlin with a very light cover, basically, that they were a security platoon, uh, part of the infantry, um, conduct unconventional warfare inside West Berlin and on the outside of Berlin um, in case of a war, uh, in case World War III started, basically. I joined the unit in 1977, at the very beginning of 77. We were in civilian clothes. We carried military ID cards and had our normal identities um, working in the city. We trained in civilian clothes. We often went to West Germany for practicing hard skills like shooting and demolitions, things like that. Parachuting, of course, was done in West Germany. But inside the city, we wore civilian clothes, spoke German as best as some of us could, and with as minimal a, an American accent as you could affect. We had some people that were fluent in German, had people that were fluent in other languages. Um, you had to be at least a 3-3 in German uh, on the military language test, um, which did not guarantee that you were fluent, but you could at least pass yourself off as something other than American. In my particular case, I carried Greek identification for my wartime mission. So I spoke German uh, well, but no German would guess that I was, or even assume that I was German, but they were willing to assume I was something else other than American. You would kind of replace your American accent with another, like with a Greek accent. <laughs> what would happen if things had escalated to the point where even, you know, the Russians had closed the city off and, you know, maybe hostilities had started somewhere else? I just wanted to know what were the, what would a possible timeline be and how would you deploy and... What would you take with you? Is that something we could talk about? What's really surprised me is is how the genre has changed and how much information is out there. You know, you read stuff by Jean Le Carré and 
he talks around a lot of things. He's, he's given names to things. Uh, obviously, you know, the word mole comes from one of his books. But uh, there's been another writer that's um, uh, been really prolific, and he passed away a couple of years. Charles McCary uh, was a former agency officer. He's written some really, really good stuff. But there's another guy that just recently came out, Jason Matthews. He wrote Red Sparrow. Oh, right. Yeah, the the movie came out, but I I picked up that book just to just to take a look at it, and I was just astounded how much stuff that uh, he put in there about tradecraft. There were a, a number of different things that went into getting into the unit. If you're familiar with official cover people and non-official cover people, mm-hmm. that's kind of the thing that that we had to work around. Um, when you were posted to Berlin, you were posted as a member of the U.S. Army Berlin Brigade, and you were assigned to Detachment A. Detachment A was all anybody knew. Um, throughout the years, there have been conjecture about how much the Russians knew, how much the East Germans knew, how much the um, local German national staff of U.S. Army Berlin knew about the unit. But basically, everyone knew that you were assigned to Detachment A. You had a identification card that said you are a U.S. Army soldier, and you basically lived day to day as a U.S. Army soldier. The part that 99.9% of the people did not know was that you had an alternative identity, which you started to develop as soon as you got assigned to the unit. Um, There were guys that, quite rightly, were... um, Covered as Eastern Europeans, we had a number of refugees that had joined the U.S. Army, part of the Lodge Act early on. And these guys were native Czech speakers, native Polish speakers, Ukrainians. They would basically develop a cover that capitalized on their assets. Other people would become Germans. Most of the Americans uh, who were assigned to the unit spoke German. Uh, There were a number that spoke other languages. We had one guy that was a fluent Finnish speaker, so naturally he became a uh, Finn. Um, And once you got to the city, Berlin, you began to develop that that cover. Now, it was a cover that you would not use on a day-to-day basis. It was developed for the contingency that when we went to war, you would become that person. And so it was one day you're John Smith, and the next day you're Ivan Denisovich or something along that line. So it was an ongoing process. We had people to develop the documentation for us. Uh, it was very good documentation. If you've ever read any of the, the books by some of the uh, agency people on it, you can imagine how good it was. And you would develop your persona there. Then you would also work within your team to figure out how you were going to operate in a city that was either at war or was closed down because of the war. Uh, I think there were basically two options for the city. The Russians were going to surround it and close it off, turn it into the world's largest POW camp, or they were going to go into the city and seize control. From later documentation, it was fairly clear that the East Germans were planning to come into West Berlin and seize control, at which point we would have gone underground and worked as 
basically an underground force very similar to the underground of the French resistance during World War II. That's that's an overview, right? Was that a surprise to you when you kind of looked at – because I looked at – I mean, there's an article that heads the Stasi file reports of how they planned on sending the Felix Jerzinski Brigade across the – I think across the Telto Canal and into McNair Barracks and to take certain buildings in, in West Berlin. Was that a surprise when you found that out? Had you always expected that it was going to be the Russians? I mean, what were you expecting? We, we actually assumed that from the beginning. Um, I found in some army planning documents that we had actually planned on the East Germans coming into Berlin as early as around 1962-61. That was even mm-hmm. before the wall went up. So the, the whole defense plan for Berlin, not just for Special Forces Berlin, but for the Berlin Brigade and the British units, was in the expectation that the East Germans would come in and try to c- capture the city. Did you guys practice drills i mean if that was happening like go where do you go and where where would you go did you have other apartments or safe houses or places that you would go in the city in your in your second i guess you called it a wartime persona in the last interview yeah uh, i think that's appropriate um we um the one thing that we did not want to do was get caught on uh, we didn't want to get caught on the x and the plan was to get as far away from our barracks, our offices as quickly as possible. So we planned on that. And we had contingencies. Our equipment was dispersed throughout the city. Some teams had more equipment than others, but basically we were planning on disappearing into the city as as quickly as possible. We did not expect that the Russians or the East Germans would be able to mount a surprise attack on the city without some sort of indications. And so we counted on probably having, you know, anywhere from 12 to 24 hours uh, notice uh, before anything would happen. In that case, we could disappear into the city. We had places to go. We had equipment to use. And we could carry on from there. So you describe in your book some of the more rudimentary caches with wigs and old plastic explosives and, uh, you know, shaped like coal and things like that. I mean, how did you upgrade your cache system? Well, the the caches that were in the ground uh, were not upgraded. We had uh, approximately 24 of those in the ground, two per team, actually four per team. And then we had above ground caches that were kept in the city by actual team members. No, they weren't official at all. They, they were... We just started doing that. So the the caches in the ground were explosives, radio gear, uh, weapons, World War II type automatic pistols and automatic uh, or submachine guns. The above ground caches that we kept elsewhere were ammunition, food, medical supplies, explosives. So basically two systems, one official, which was classified at a very high level, and one completely offline that was also classified, but only classified in that the officers never knew what we were doing. The enlisted men were running it by themselves. 
I'll leave it at that. Oh, so that was probably at someone's apartment or something like that. Yeah, that's a good conjecture. Huh? <laughs> like somebody, somebody whose rent you were paying yourself to make sure they didn't get kicked out. Yeah. I guess it would also be important to have a shovel too for the underground ones. The underground ones were buried approximately four feet underground with a concrete slab over the top of them. That's not easy to get through. The question was was whether or not you were going to be able to find it. None of them ever got found by anybody else, though. I heard one might have been found. There was a German developer or something. Yeah, all but one of them were recovered in 1991, 92, somewhere around there. And one of them was buried underneath a building or a, a structure. There was one that was found in Germany or in Berlin, but it was not one of ours. We're not sure who that one belonged to. So for you personally, could you say where you would have gone? I would have gone deep into the sewers and hid. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Just waited it out? (laughs) Um, Yeah. You would have sheltered at home? (laughs) No. You couldn't shelter at home because before too long, they would figure out where you were living. Quite frankly... You know, we, uh, our mission life was not that long. It was probably 72 hours at the minimum, at the maximum. We did not actually expect that we would be around that long. We didn't really think about it, but, um, you know, the whole mission was to delay the, the movement of Soviet forces from east to west. As I describe in the book, there was a railway concentration around Berlin called the Berliner Ring. About 80% of the Soviet and Polish Warsaw Pact forces were expected to transit as they moved west. Now, there were other people who were going to go down south and go through Austria, and there were other people who were going to do a right hook into Scandinavia. Uh, But uh, the ones we were worried about were the troops that were going to come through Central East Germany and head for the Fulda Gap. So our mission was to slow them down. Uh, General, that's what General Rogers came up and said to us, so your mission is to buy me time. And that was 24 to 72 hours. So you would you have used, you had C4 explosives, I mean, just to blow up the steel? C4, C3, which was still quite viable. Uh, that was the stuff that was in the caches. Um, later on, of course, we had M118, Pride of DuPont plastic explosive. Yeah, we had all the explosive materials. Taking out a track is not real effective. Taking out 20 feet of track is effective. What's more effective, though, is going for uh, infrastructure, going for railway exchanges, railway bridges, uh, things like that. So one more question about the wartime personas that I'm fascinated with. Was there any guidelines you had in making these up? It, it would seem that you would want to make them as unassuming as possible. But do, do you remember any of them that kind of stuck out to you as memorable? The key, I think, was was to get something that fit your capabilities. Obviously, you know, your, mm-hmm. your outward look, your ability in the language. If you could not speak Swedish, you did not want to become a Swedish chef. Those were the basic guidelines. And then everything else was, does it make sense? You know, why would you be in Berlin if you're not a German? You know, why would you be in Berlin if you're uh, an Eastern European? How do you support the fact that at some point you must have emigrated from Hungary to Berlin? Uh, and so you have to have good reasons for that. At one point, a guy was considered for the unit. He was a Hungarian escapee. Turns out he was a Hungarian pilot who had escaped by flying out his aircraft to West Germany. So that was a guy that we did not want in the unit. 
The staff had plans to go to England? The staff would have gone to England and acted as the termination for our, all our communication. Oh, so that was the plan. Yeah. So the six teams were stuck. The staff got to go away. Uh, but, you know, if the Russians had been quick, the staff would have been stuck. Yeah. How would you communicate? Just burst transmission back then? Or was there anything else? Well, it was burst later on. Initially, it was uh, straight HF. We had miniature versions of the uh, 109, similar radios. Later on, we got some British radios uh, that did satellite burst communications. We could do that. I guess there anything else you wanted to you wanted to add about about the unit that um, you know maybe people don't understand or they they still don't seem to get even though you've written a book about it. <laughs> no, it's um, it was it was interesting. A lot of people within special forces were not even aware that the unit existed even at that time. Nowadays, no, it existed either. The interesting thing is a lot of the stuff that we were doing then. They're now trying to recreate at the insistence of uh, Charlie Cleveland, the former commander of U.S. Army SOCOM, in their Jedburg teams. So Special Forces has lost a lot of that unconventional warfare, uh, irregular warfare uh, knowledge, I think. So as of about two years ago, I'm not sure it was very strong. I'm not sure how, how far they've advanced on it, but you know, a lot of what Special Forces is doing now is... Trying to trying to do the high speed low drag stuff, sort of like Delta and SEAL Team Six, so you know things like that. A lot of direct action stuff, which I think you know they have the capability of doing it, but yeah, you know, that's hyper infantry stuff. You don't want to do that. How were all the, the veterans from the units? I was lucky enough to have interviewed General Sidney Shack now before he passed away a couple of years ago. Barry and I interviewed him. And then, so how's Bob Cherist and the rest of the gang? Oh, they're doing well. Uh, we're planning on having hope a get together in uh, September out in Colorado. Uh, that'll be good. As one guy said, you know, as we go along here, before too long, we'd be able to hold a reunion inside a phone booth. And there seems to be quite a few still around, so that was kind of refreshing. Somewhere over 800 people uh, served with Special Forces Berlin, either the, the first iteration or the second reincarnation of the unit. Um, there's still quite a few around, still a few of the the original people. That's fascinating. I just want, I want to throw one more thing in really quickly, is that this unit was recently, I mean, it was, it was one of the best kept secrets in the armed forces, and it was only recently declassified? Well, it was only declassified because of the book. Um, Detachment A existed. The fact that, that that unit existed was not classified. What its purpose and mission was, was classified. So Detachment A was the overt, uh, recognizable unit um, that we belong to. But it was also known, it has a classified name of 39th Special Forces. That was classified. When I wrote the book, the fact that Detachment A and 39th Special Forces were the same was one of the first things that was declassified. The details of its mission and things that I describe in the book uh, were only declassified because uh, of the DOD review process. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's why your, your title isn't Detachment A, Special Forces Berlin. It's Special Forces Berlin. Well, also it covers two units. Detachment A was the first unit, um, 39th Special Forces, that was established in 1956. It was actually closed down shortly after the Iran raid. Well, not shortly after, but two years after the Iran raid. 
and it was replaced by another unit, physical security support element, which was the 410th Special Forces. Now, physical security support element had a much better cover mechanism than Detachment A, uh, had the same missions, existed in the, for the same reasons, but uh, they were basically two separate units. Transition right after Operation Eagle Claw, which is the uh, which is the mission to yeah. to save to save the hostages. That there were there were some Detachment A soldiers involved in that operation. I think it was an article in what yeah. magazine that came out. Uh, there was an article in Newsweek which. Um, compromised the existence of a special forces unit in Berlin. Not specifically, but enough to make the people uh, in the Pentagon worried. And uh, the Sinkur, uh, who was at that time, he directed the unit to uh, fix its security profile. Over the next uh, year and a half, it was determined that would be almost impossible. So the unit was closed down. And the new unit came up, PSSE, and that's it kept the mission going. So the reason the book is named Special Forces Berlin is because putting Detachment A and PSSE or 39th and 410th, I thought, would just confuse the issue. Both units were in the top secret mission plan known as Special Forces Berlin. And this is a really detailed history of uh, Special Forces. I mean, you mentioned characters. You spoke to each one of the guys that served. How many, over the period, how many how many guys served in this in this unit? If it was a company size and it existed since 1957, what are we looking at, the total number of cadre? From June 1956 until about October of 1980, or excuse me, 1990, uh, a total of about 800-some uh, served there. That's still not a lot. So you had some re- no. you had some repeat offenders there. I mean, some people that can that stuck around for a while. Well, people that would stick around for four to five years. Other people came back. Uh, there were guys that served twice in Detachment A. Uh, one guy served three times. PSSE was around for a shorter amount of time, but about 10 or 15 people served in Detachment A were allowed to go to uh, PSSE, uh, me being one of them. And so, yeah, you had repeat offenders, as you said, and then a lot of guys that rotated through. A number of guys came there and decided they, after their two years, uh, didn't want to stay there at all. Uh, A lot of guys preferred working in the uniform special forces outfits um not doing a sneaky beat kind of you know civilian clothes stuff preferred working in the field uh, more than they preferred working in the city they went away there were others of us who liked uh, the job that we had uh, and stayed longer so I, I was in berlin in the the late the late 80s and uh i, I was with the, i was with the brigade i was with an engineer unit but special forces berlin and detachment a pssc they were part of a they were part of a larger group of intelligence collection uh, analysis and counterintelligence could you maybe describe like the units that you came in contact with while you were in berlin Berlin was one of the focal points for the espionage war going on in the, during during the um, during the Cold War. You had roughly twelve thousand Allied troops stuffed inside West Berlin, surrounded on the outside by roughly a million Warsaw Pact unit uh, people. Made for a comfortable feeling, a feeling I must say. But uh, Berlin was also the focal point for a lot of espionage activity. A lot of uh, people from the east would travel to Berlin um, and vice versa. 
everyone capitalized on that. Uh, the the Russians and the East Germans had a huge presence on the other side of the wall, and they would send spies into West Berlin, uh, just like the agency and the DGSE and British MI6 or SI. DGSE is uh, the French uh, External Intelligence Service, and then there was the British MI6 or properly named uh, Special Intelligence Service, Secret Intelligence Service, uh, which is the corollary to the CIA. So on any one day, there was probably 10 to 15 intelligence operations being run in West Berlin by all these different services. The military also had a big presence. Uh, there was a, a military intelligence detachment there. Uh, there was a counterintelligence detachment there. The Army Security Agency had a huge listening post there. Actually, there were three in the city. Teufelsburg, Marienfelde. And at Tempelhof. So there, there was a big presence there. And the agency also, they had a, a station in East Berlin, and they had a base in West Berlin. You said the agency had, had stations in East Germany and in East Berlin? No, in East Berlin. Oh, God, I'm just curious. Where was it? Well, it was, the, it was with the embassy. Oh, just the embassy. Okay. I thought you were talking about a secret little safe house that they had. I... I can't comment on anything like that. Besides, it would be speculation on my point but, uh, part. The only thing always, we always said was there was a cafe right across on the American side on Friedrichstrasse, right next to Checkpoint Charlie. And they always pointed up above this cafe and said, oh, the CIA rents that apartment. Because <laughs> it just overlooked, it was like an apartment, right? And it overlooked the entire checkpoint. Yeah. I mean, most of the people that crossed the checkpoint had their ID cards and they were normal people. The guys that you had to worry about were the guys that were coming back and forth on the S-Bahn trains. Did you ever cross into the east on the on the S-Bahn? Yeah, yeah. And that was just to kind of yeah. test it as, an, as a possible infiltration point? or Well, it was a good good way to see the underground and, you know, just uh, pop out and see what the East Germans were up to. But, you know, it was, it was possible to do. I mean, the official way was to go across in uniform or in civilian clothes if uh, it could be wrangled uh, with your West Berlin ID. Uh, you could travel across on a U.S. passport not if you were military, unless you had special permission, because if you travel, obviously, if you travel in uh, with a blue passport, you're basically subject to being arrested. Whereas if you had the uh, the proper identification, the East Germans couldn't touch you in, in East Berlin. So if you went to East Berlin, say, on a maybe a surveillance mission, or would you travel, you would travel with your, your civilian... ID your civ your civilian cover story. Would you ever use your wartime persona? Would that were that was that something you held on to? The wartime persona was something that you held on and guarded. Traveling into the east, you were either had special permission to travel on a passport, or you traveled on military ID in East Berlin. If you were traveling in East Germany officially, it would probably be with the military liaison mission, and those were all done with ID cards. So officially, you were traveling officially 98% of the time. You'd made a transition into um, the CIA. Having s served in Berlin, that's sort of a pretty good card to punch. A lot of the things that we did there were basically the same type of operations and same type of methods and techniques that the agency used. 
So you're basically already trained at a lot of those things. So it becomes, as you go along, it becomes more and more natural. Um, I served with another unit after Berlin that was also involved in some rather interesting operations, and that was a further extension, a further uh, learning experience. I had a lot of contacts with people in the agency uh, through the work. This was in Berlin? In Berlin and elsewhere, after after I was in Berlin. Uh, so I made a lot of friends, made a lot of contacts, and when I retired... Um, some of them were in positions within the agency to make me an offer uh, to work with them. So I was recruited into the agency based on um, my work in the Army. I guess just to back up a little bit, your specialty, what was your specialty on the teams? I started out as weapons, was cross-trained as a medic, cross-trained in demolitions, then went to operations and intelligence. That was as an enlisted man. And then I went to the warrant officer program and became what was then known as the special forces technician, which was the basically the operations and intelligence specialist on the team, as well as being the 2IC, the second in command. And so a lot of my stuff from Berlin and afterwards in the military was directed towards intelligence uh, intelligence work uh, in support of special operations, uh, but a lot of intelligence kind of work. I got away from the hard skills of shooting and kicking doors and things like that. Some of the areas where you where you uh, would you say operated or would you say worked? What's what's the term? Worked <laughs> where I worked. You know, technically you're called an operations officer with the agency. Uh, uh, also called a case officer, uh, which is a handler. I call myself a dispatcher sometimes because you're you are not the spy. You are working with the spies. The spies are the foreigners that you asked to get secrets for you. Uh, so you dispatch them out. What's your general training that you would have? I mean, imagine you have to train these these assets. And what do they typically understand and not understand? Like when you find someone who is working, who we are dispatching, what, what's, what do you usually have to teach them? It depends on the category of agent they are. The you know they might they might be providing you information willingly or unwillingly, not unwillingly but unknowingly. So how you handle them uh, is going to be different. So the biggest thing is to, is security, the security of your agents, of course, the security for yourself, but mostly for your agents because they're the ones that are doing all the risky stuff. So you want to teach them how to communicate with you secretly, mm -hmm. how to avoid getting caught. You have to teach them all those kind of things. I can't really go into anything too much more specific than that, but sure. it's, yeah. So they have access to information that you want. You want to have them get it to you safely and securely. Uh, you don't want to lose, uh, an asset, obviously. You know, there's different there's different motivations for agents. I mean, there's financial, um, I idealistic, sometimes just situational. What do you think of the most? What was the most common motivation of people that worked for you? I think nine times out of ten, it's going to be monetary, financial, especially in uh, third world countries. You're going to get ideological recruits, but they're more, they are rare. Take the case of the Matrokin Archive, a mm -hmm. Russian officer who was reprimanded and sent off to be a librarian in the KGB archives. Big mistake because he thought he was unduly um, 
punished. And over the period of the next 20 years, he put together copies of almost everything that was in the library and ended up smuggling them out. That was not ideological. That was revenge uh, on his bosses. Now, he obviously made some financial reward, got some financial reward out of it. That was his motivation, was revenge. You see that from time to time. There was a case in Berlin. There were several cases in Berlin. The East Germans and the Russians, especially the East Germans, would listen to telephones to determine which soldier was having a financial problem. Uh, They would hang out at the bars and listen to the soldiers talking and then find out who, um, who had a problem and approach them with a financial solution to help them refinance their house or their car. And all you had to do was bring me a telephone book or a copy of your unit's um, daily reports. And a lot of guys, um, a lot of guys uh, listened to that. How are they listening into phone conversations? Well, they could, I mean, the, the German post office, their lines were tappable, and they could put their implants in just about anywhere in Berlin and get onto these phones. Now, sometimes it would involve a physical listening device, but that was less often. You know, they would they would actually cut into the the Bundespost uh, telephone lines. Well, we did the same, we did the same thing to them, so it's only fair. But imagine some of the some of the uh, detachment A missions would have been to disrupt communications. I mean, did you have were there any plans or operations to to you know go into the east? Did you know where their phone hubs were and all this? That was not part of our mission. Uh, the, the intercept stuff that was uh, for somebody who says our our mission was to. Um, Take out transportation nodes, uh, rail lines, bridges, uh, things like that that would actually disrupt the movement of troops uh, from the rear areas to the front. So communications was a lesser target. You weren't so concerned about them communicating in Berlin. It was like, let's stop them from getting to the West. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big thing. You mentioned something. You said something about building a legend. I wanted you to kind of maybe talk through that a little bit. Like what what entails building building a legend? Building the legend is building a cover story. Uh, the, the legend is the story behind your cover. If you choose to be a, um, let's pick one, a street worker from Turkey, then obviously you you have to know the language. You have to know German because you're working with German supervisors, but you have to know Turkish because you're purportedly from Turkey. You have ID cards, um, both Turkish passport and German residency cards, unless you're an illegal, which could happen. Um, so you've got the paper trail that places you in Turkey and in Berlin legally. And then you have to build the story. You know, where were you born? Who are your parents? Where did you go to school? Who are your brothers and sisters? Why did you leave Turkey? Uh, how long have you been here? Um, uh, what checkpoints did you go through on the way to get here? Etc. Etc. It's basically writing a story that will take you from point A to point B. Point A being your birth, and point B where you are now. And being able to tell that story and convey it in a manner that is uh, authentic, verifiable, and um, one that you can tell over and over again and not change. How would you guys authenticate and verify that in in the unit, or even further on in the CIA? I mean, are there other sort of processes in place where you can 
test your ident- test your, your your legend or cover story? Yeah, I mean, there's ways to do it. For one thing, going knowing the place where you live usually entails going there. You might travel there under a under your normal identification, but getting to know the spot where you're from is critical. Um, the only way to test your identification is to have someone, a professional, like a border crossing person, test it out. So you have to go through and actually physically do those things. Practice going through an airport or a train uh, custom station. Um, you can do that either with role players or you can – there's a number of different ways to do it, but you – I guess you could practice at Starbucks as well. Yeah, yeah, especially with the Stasi guys sitting behind you listening and taking notes. So, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So there, I'm just, there isn't really an opening night. I mean, I'm just kind of comparing things to an actor playing a character, but there isn't really an opening night for like a legend. There's just a series of, of situations where you can practice it. Without pulling your identification out of your pocket, you can walk into a Berlin bar and practice your, your spiel, your talk with your partner sitting next to you drinking his beer. When he asks you where you're from and he knows you're not a Berliner, then you tell him the story of your life. This is how I escaped oppression in Bulgaria or something like that. Right. You know, Berlin was not a homogenous society. There were, I mean, there were obviously Germans, but there were also, you know, Italians, Irish, Spanish, uh, Turkish, Greek, all points of the world. A lot of Eastern European Europeans, uh, Poles would be there. Uh, so just about anything worked. You know, some some Berliners might not like the fact that you're a Turk uh, in their city, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just something they had to deal with. So. And what was your what was your story? I mean, you were a Greek, I think that was your cover story. So you would actually you would actually test your wartime persona in Berlin bars. <laughs> yeah, or if you really wanted to have fun, you could go to the Irish pub and and try to get in a fight with all the British soldiers there. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, Anyway. First and down, the Irish pub up there. Yeah. Or you go into the French sector and practice your French on them up there and <laughs> get laughed at. But yeah, you, you could you could do that. Do you ever have any, any relationships that they I'm not I'm not talking, you know, romantic necessarily, but any 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 relationship that anybody just know you as, as a cover story? Not in my persona, my wartime persona, but um as just as an American who was they're officially, but not affili- affiliated with the military. Yeah. What was your civilian cover story in Berlin? Really had two. You've got your military cover story because you're with the PSSE. But when you go downtown, you if you're talking to a German for a long time, and this is going to be somebody that might know you as an American, then you just tell them that you have to come up with a story for your being there. Some guys were students. Um, long-term students at the free university. Some people just were long-term, not beatniks, but uh, living living in the town as a long-term tourist. Mm-hmm. Um, expats, you know, right? the expatriate ex, community. Ex, ex, expats, you know, people that had come in the military and gotten out and stayed there. In my apartment in Berlin, the people, uh, I was living with a German, uh, but they knew, uh, they figured out fairly quickly because my partner would tell them that I was an American. So they would ask me questions about where I worked. And I just said, I did administrative stuff at the uh, 
the Berlin headquarters, helping out there. Never mentioned anything about having a security clearance, nothing that would ever make anybody interested in the fact that I was, you know, a possible, you know, target or anything. Sure. uh, And I did some nighttime work at a bar downtown. What what bar? Uh, It was a restaurant bar, Uh, Candela. It was down in uh, Neukölln. Well, that's Turkish yeah. section, right? Well, it was it was mixed. It was not not a high income section, that's for sure. Very close to the Allied Commandantura. Oh, right. Okay. I remember. I mean, I knew. Um, I used to see him at the Harnick House sometimes, and um, apparently he was in this one guy who was in PSSE. He had long hair, and I'd run into him in uh, like parties in. Schoenberg or other parts of town. There was like a certain kind of ex American expatriate community that sort of that really kind of mixed in with with the Germans and other Berliners of the same age who were you know artists, painters, whatever. So there was this 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 crowd kind of traveled around with. I had no idea he was in the military. I just thought he was this American expatriate guy who was working as a bartender. There were people that could pull it off well, and people that. Couldn't pull it off well. So I think it went both ways. So yeah. Some guys lasted a long time in the unit, and other guys lasted longer than they should have, and some guys left fairly quickly. So. When did you leave the agency? I retired at the the end of 2012. Are there any, any habits that are hard hard to break? <laughs> Not so much habits, just way of ways of living that I think are prudent. Um, I think last time we talked about my my habit of um, being at a party or in some kind of a social gathering and keeping an eye on everyone in the room, which my wife finds annoying. Instead of looking at the person that's talking to me, I'm looking at the whole scene. I, I generally find... A seat in a restaurant based on where the front door and the windows are, uh, you know, right. so things like that. But that's one thing that my wife has accepted, probably because we had an encounter in in Africa where a guy walked into a uh, restaurant we were sitting in with a submachine gun, and he was threatening the owner of the restaurant, uh, and we were in a very secure location where we could <laughs> back out of the place without the guy noticing. So she, she sort of accepted that my rationale for doing this is is a good one. What did you say she called you? James, you're acting like a... Surveillance. You're acting like a surveillance. But, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that somebody is not out to get you. So there's this feeling that somebody could be... Do you generally move move with this feeling that somebody could be watching you? It's not a general feeling. It's just being – it's an abundance of caution. These these days, I don't know if it's any worse than it was, but, uh, I mean, I go outside my house. Um, I don't have my telephone up in front of my face. I'm looking around to see what's happening. Uh, and I do that you know, when I'm walking downtown. I just want to be aware of what's happening. And it could be crime. It could be – uh, an accident. It it could be you know whatever. You just want to know what's going on around you. And if you're working now for the agency and you know spotting, assessing, recruiting assets in different parts of the world, what do you think would be? I'm I'm kind of leaning toward the technology right now with smartphones. And what, what would be kind of be some of the challenges that you would face now as opposed to maybe 15 years ago? Well, I think you hit on it. Uh, the 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 technology of communication is so sophisticated now and so quick and easy that people 
want to use that. And that is actually one of the biggest uh, Achilles tendons of espionage. It's one of the easiest way to compromise uh, an operation is using technology. And it doesn't matter how secure it is. Somebody's going to figure out how to make it unsecure. I mean, going back when GPSs came out, I carried one of the very early GPS models uh, during the, the Desert War, the first Desert War. I still carried a map and pencils and a compass because you don't know when the GPS is going to get spoofed. You don't know when the batteries are going to quit, and you don't know when the thing's going to die uh, for some internal reason. So you better have a backup. And that's the same way, the same thing you're talking about with, with technology. A notepad a three by five card and a pencil is what you carry to take notes. Um, because you know, the North Koreans use one time pads to do all their communication. I don't know if you're aware of what the one time pad is. It's a series of random letters and there's only two copies, one on one end, one on the other. It's almost impossible to break. It, it, yeah. It's one time it's, it's used once and thrown away or shredded, but uh, you know, it's, it's something that, removes all the technology uh, from everything. It makes it nearly impossible to break. But you could send but you could send something from a one time pad on a WhatsApp. Oh yeah, you could. But then they know you're sending something weird. <laughs> you know, everybody was talking about the Arab revolt and how the smartphone and everything was going to make things great for the revolt and how they could pass their messages back and forth very quickly, and I wrote a small article on this while I was going to school and said, you know, we better be real careful about how we wish these guys well that are using their smartphones. And sure enough, within six months to a year, people like the Syrians had developed ways to counter those and figure out how to geolocate telephones based on what messages they were sending. And you see where we are in Syria right now. So, um, yeah. So technology is not the solution, <laughs> especially with Twitter. I mean, that has like such a geo, like a geo stamp on it. I mean, now they're using it with um, marketing companies. They say, you know, find people who you know, give me a list of all the people who are commuting from here to um, San Diego on on Thursdays because <laughs> I, I want to get an advertisement to them, and that kind of information is available. Exactly, and you know, you walk into a shopping mall with a telephone. The Wi-Fi system in that shopping mall picks up your telephone and will mark you as a visitor. The companies that are in that mall will use that information to, to track you and start delivering things to, you, to your phone. There was a case of a woman. It was a murder case. Anyway, uh, the, the whole case broke apart because of her use of Facebook and her telephone. Uh, they were able to geolocate her. They were able to track her movements all through, you know, your your telephone's IP and your Facebook timestamps. Um, it, it's all things that can break apart a case. The same thing goes for espionage operations. So, anyway, there we go. Thank you very much. Out here, Mark. That was my interview with James Sakel. It was recorded in 2018. Um, his book, Special Forces Berlin, Clandestine Cold War Operations at the U.S. Army's Elite, is available wherever you get your books. I'm also looking forward to talking to James again soon. He has another book called Masters of Mayhem, 
the seeds of British special operations, Lawrence of Arabia, and the British military mission to the Hejaz. And I'm kind of a Lawrence of Arabia fan, so I'm looking forward to that. End of transmission.